Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All good until we got here. It was uh, canceled, our 420 flight. And they said we have to rebook, and the line is like four blocks long. We were just going to recheck in a hotel because they said even if you go through this line, it might be up to New Year to get a flight. I was on hold for six hours. I literally fell asleep, woke up, and I was still on hold. Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. It is Tuesday, December 27th. Don is off. We are glad to be here. What a day. You got home okay yesterday. Thank yeah, goodness. but the airports are insane. Yeah. And so I just, I feel for people like that passenger there on hold yeah. for over six hours. Unbelievable. So plans uh, are all being unraveled for travelers of Southwest Airlines, especially this morning. More than 60% of their flights already canceled today. Also, the death toll is rising in Buffalo, New York, after a blizzard crippled the area and residents still digging themselves out of the snowstorm this morning. We're live on the ground where officials say conditions remain dangerous. Also, China this morning taking a big step toward reopening its borders after shutting down much of the shutting out much of the world for nearly three years. The other COVID restrictions they plan to lose ahead. Plus this. I'm not a criminal, not here not abroad in any jurisdiction in the world have I ever committed any crimes. But he is admitting to embellishing his resume. After a week of silence, Congressman-elect George Santos has now admitted to lying about parts of his past. He still says he will take office next week, though. We'll talk about all of that, but first, these cancellations uh, for, for people across the country. The cancellation boards are lighting up. Again, at the nation's busiest airports, especially for people on Southwest Airlines. Thousands of passengers scrambled to make alternative plans as flight after flight and city after city have been canceled. Listen to this overheard announcement at the airport in Houston. Unfortunately, our next available seats for rebooking are on the 31st and beyond. Once again, our next available seats for rebooking customers at this time is at the 31st and beyond. The 31st of December, that is five days away. Southwest Airlines CEO tells the Wall Street Journal, quote, this is the largest scale event that I have ever seen. The airline says it will most likely have to cancel even more flights today. Let's begin this hour with our Gabe Cohen. He is live at BWI Marshall Airport in Baltimore this morning. Can you help people understand, Gabe, why this is happening to Southwest in particular when much of the bad weather is gone? Yeah, well, Poppy, that's a great question. And first off, as you mentioned, Southwest Airline passengers can expect this meltdown to only get worse. They've already canceled more than 60 percent of their schedule for today, close to 2,500 flights. And the CEO of the company told The Wall Street Journal they're only expecting to fly just over a third of their schedule in the coming days as they try to regroup after what they're really blaming, which is the winter storm and the holiday rush. They say they're trying to get pieces 
back into place ahead of New Year's travel. But again, this has been a disastrous few days, including a disastrous Monday for the company when the airline canceled more than 2,900 flights. That's more than 70 percent of their schedule, leaving passengers stranded all across the country, creating these huge lines in airports everywhere, including here in Baltimore. And as you saw before, people sitting on hold for hours trying to rebook their flights. Take a listen to a father stranded in the Orlando airport who was sleeping on the floor for the third straight night with his family. I feel very, very uh, upset, really, to be honest. Very, very upset. I mean, because, I mean, we keep looking at the, the flights, uh, the chart, and everything's literally canceled or delayed. There's no flights going out. Now, Poppy Southwest, again, is largely blaming that winter storm, saying they ended up with flight crews spread all over the country in largely in the wrong cities. And they've been tra scrambling to figure out where people are and get pieces back in, in the right place. So that's why they're canceling so many flights. But again, it is important to note and to stress that they are the only major U.S. airline that's dealing with this issue of mass cancellation so many days after this winter storm in places where there really is no weather issue anymore. And the union that represents Southwest pilots uh, says that this is really not about the winter storm. This is about outdated processes and outdated IT. So again, it is a messy situation, only expected to get worse in the coming days, uh, and certainly messy for tens of thousands of passengers stranded mostly just trying to get home. Look, and the company concedes that too, saying there's a lot they have to fix on the system that tells the pilots and the flight attendants where to go, uh, but what pain for travelers as a result. Gabe, thanks for the reporting. Also this morning, the death toll in New York's Erie County has risen to 27 after what Governor, Governor Kathy Hochul called, quote, the blizzard of the century. Many of those who died lived in Buffalo, which saw about 43 inches of snow. Thousands of people were left at home without power or heat, and hundreds of drivers were stranded in freezing temperatures. Even the emergency and recovery vehicles that were sent out to help also got stuck in the snow. And officials are also warning that up to 12 more inches could fall today. CNN's Polo Sandoval, Sandoval is live in Buffalo. Polo, what are you hearing about what those rescue efforts are looking like this morning? Well, Caitlin, with that death toll uh, continuing to rise, what we are seeing are other New York State communities that are sending in reinforcements, sending in resources here to Buffalo, which is still experiencing a driving ban. It is expected to remain in place through today at least. Uh, those reinforcements meant to provide assistance to get to people who have been snowed in their homes for days now and also to continue with the plowing operations to try to get more of those streets clear and safe and drivable as well. Uh, the other concern as well is getting food into the city, particularly to those warming shelters and to some of the facilities where those first responders who have been working for days now can actually uh, have something to eat. You see all those facilities, all those grocery stores, everything's been closed here. So you do have some of the big chains that are announcing that they are going to open as soon as it's safely possible to do so. Uh, but still, there is so much uncertainty right now, Caitlin. We've been basically, my team and I have been sheltering in place at a hotel with Buffalo residents for four, going on five days now. And residents here are telling me that they are learning that they experience pipe bursting in their home. So even after they're given the green light to return home, uh, this ordeal will be far from over for so many residents who live here who experience what they will always remember as a blizzard of 22. Yeah. And more snow still expected today. Polo, stay safe. We'll check back in with you this morning.
All right, let's go to meteorologist Chad Myers, who joins us now. I mean, it's amazing to see it is still snowing in Buffalo. Yes. South towns this morning, um, Cheektowaga, West Seneca, East Aurora, Hamburg, all the way down to the south of Buffalo proper. But that band of snow will pop back up into Buffalo proper, probably another two to four inches likely today. More downwind of Lake Ontario, that's Watertown. But Buffalo, like you could use any more, 50 inches so far from this storm. It's still cold, but the warm air is on its way. A little bit of help. The warm air is in the west right now, getting pushed to the east by another storm system that's coming on shore there. Now, this warm air is going to warm things back up into the 40s and 50s. And yesterday at my apartment, temperatures were about 34, and we were doing very well. Hey, it's warming up. Guess what, though? The pipes were already frozen, and the pipes were already cracked. And that weather that warmed things up made those pipes melt. And all of a sudden, that little plug that was a little plug of ice is no longer there. And the water was pouring out ice everywhere this morning as temperatures went back down. This freeze thaw, freeze thaw thing is going to go on now for days and days and days. So just because you're warming up doesn't mean you're out of the woods. We could see significant amounts of those pipe burst problems across the East Coast. Could be millions or billions of dollars worth of problems here with that flooding. There's the next storm for the West Coast, the European model. Over the next 10 days, in places in the Sierra, puts down, I'm not stuttering, 20 feet of snow in the highest elevations. That will cause travel problems, and that can cause avalanche issues as well. Poppy. 20 feet of snow. Uh, yeah. Chad Myers. New. new snow. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. All right, the weekend of Trouble Nightmares is not yeah. just, you know, at the airports. It also upended the retirement plans of our next guest. Michael Mothershed was set to officiate his final game as a Pac-12 conference football referee after nearly 30 years, but he wasn't able to make it to the Quick Lane Bowl in Detroit after his first Southwest flight was canceled. The second Delta flight he booked was also severely delayed. That's Jeff Servinsky. He is actually the backup referee. He was called in. He's from Midland, Michigan, about two hours away on Christmas Day. That's because the referee, Michael Mothershed, who's supposed to be here, missed his flight. So, Michael, if you are watching this game, man, you are certainly missed. You spent 28 years as a referee in the Pac-12. I know you're retiring. We wish you well in the future and all you give to college football. That was Michael Mothershed's replacement there, but joining us this morning is Michael himself. Michael, thank you for being here. We were so bummed by this story. I mean, we're, just, we're talking about the implications of this travel nightmare, but what a bummer for you to have to miss your final game. Tell us what happened to you as you went to the airport over the weekend. Good morning. Well, it all started on, on Christmas Eve. I, I had a flight with Southwest and it was scheduled to take off at 6.30 a.m. I arrived at the airport probably before five and um, you know, I looked at the board and it indicated that my flight was canceled. Uh, but there was another flight that was leaving at 6.40. I was scheduled to leave San Diego, uh, arrive in Dallas, Fort Worth, and then proceed on to Detroit. So I went to the gate, and there was no one there. Eventually, I said if I needed to cancel, uh, reschedule, rebook my flight, that I had to go downstairs to customer service. So I proceeded downstairs. There was a line already there. And it was probably about 5.15 when I entered the line. 
And I was there for approximately four and a half hours. Oh, my God. Waiting to talk to an in agent. Li- in line for and, four and a half hours. In line. Four on and a half Christmas hours. Eve. Yes. On Christmas Eve. Yes. I did not expect that. When, when Caitlin told me about your story, because this is the big college football fan over here, I couldn't believe it. Okay. And I, I, and I thought, he's going to have to go back to work and work another year and have another final game. But, but in all seriousness, we're glad. We hope you have a happy retirement. But what was it like to watch someone else officiating that game, um, given what we now know about why a lot of these airline you know, cancellations, especially with Southwest, were happening? It wasn't just weather. Yeah, you know, you know, it was a little different, um, and it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there on, on the couch watching uh, my crew work and a, a different referee, and I'm thinking, God, here I am, I am watching the game that I am supposed to be, uh. you know, supposed to work, and it was, it was very, it was strange, and you know, things happen. I did not expect this to happen at all, at all. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's one of those things, you know, you experience and you chalk it up and you kind of move on. <laughs> but to close out my career as a referee on the field, uh, I did not anticipate this. Yeah. Well, you had 28 years where you were a referee, nine as the main referee. Since you did not get to officiate your your final game that you were hoping to do, are there any moments from from those years that you want to share? Anything that were the biggest highlights that you've reflected on? You know, I, I mean, I in, in two thousand and uh, I worked the the two thousand and six national championship game, and that was uh, that was fantastic. That was between Florida and Ohio State, and this year I had the opportunity to work. Oregon and UCLA, and that was number nine versus number 10. And, you know, we worked a great ball game. It was a fantastic crowd. And, you know, it's really um, a privilege and to be able to, to work as an official and to work at this level. So I, I really had uh, a, a great game as a, as a referee and as a crew, and uh, that was probably one of the highlights for this year. Congrats on an amazing career. Instead of people yelling at refs all the time, we should say thank you for all that you guys get right. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I feel you know, like I, appreciate, I appreciate that. I this appreciate is my that. message to Caitlin when she thinks the refs get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Michael, we're super grateful you joined us this morning. We're sorry that you missed your final game, uh, but thank you for coming on to talk about it. And thank you for your years uh, as a referee. You're welcome, and, and thank you. I appreciate your, your time. Oh. All right. Well, incoming Republican Congressman George Santos is now finally admitting to lying about really significant parts of his resume, what he is saying in two interviews. That's ahead. Also, China is making some big changes to the country's travel policies as they are now easing COVID restrictions. We'll tell you what's different. This morning, incoming Republican Congressman George Santos is breaking his week-long silence amid discrepancies about his education and employment history. He now says he never graduated from any college or university, despite saying that he had, and that he never worked for Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, despite saying he had. He says he is apologizing for embellishing his resume. 
I'm not a fraud. I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. And I'm not going to make excuses for this, but much, a lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or ingrandiate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. I want to make sure that if I disappointed anyone by resume embellishments, I'm sorry. CNN's Eva McCann is covering this story and joins me now this morning. Eva, this seems a lot more than just overstating a resume as he framed it there. It certainly does, Caitlin. Santos finally breaking his silence here, admitting he lied about key details in his resume, but it still really falls short of a real robust explanation of why much of what he said on the campaign trail as it pertains to his personal biography is false. He said in an interview with the New York Post and a local radio station that we heard there that he did not actually work for Citigroup or for Goldman Sachs, even though previously on the campaign trail, he repeatedly said he did. He tried to explain this away by arguing he worked for them through his company, calling it a poor choice of words to claim he worked directly for those firms. Santos also conceded he never graduated from any college or university after previously claiming he received degrees from both NYU and Baruch College. You know, he now says he's embarrassed and suggested it's not uncommon to lie on a resume, really trying to downplay the severity of an incoming member of Congress caught in so many lies. Uh, but Caitlin, he maintains he's not a criminal and says he still intends to serve in Congress. Well, what about the claim, though, that he had that he said he lost employees during the Pulse nightclub shooting? Yeah, Caitlin, this too appears to have been a lie. And this is significant because this is not just about his personal biography. This was a deeply tragic event that occurred in this country. And he now says the victims of that horrific shooting never worked for him. Uh, take a listen. Did anyone who worked for you perish in the Pulse nightclub shooting? That worked for me directly? No, but we did have people who were being hired to work for the company at the time who during, I was in Florida during the Pulse nightclub shooting at, a, at another uh, nightclub that same evening, not too far away. But yes, we did lose four people who were going to be coming to work for the company no, that was Congress starting up in Orlando. So this is sort of a word soup salad here, but it is a lie. Uh, this morning, we are left with more questions and answers. Question remain about his uh, charity, claims that his grandparents died in the Holocaust, his financial disclosures. I mean, it's just endless, a litany of other issues. Uh, what is for sure, though, is Republican leadership, Kevin McCarthy, who will have to rely on Santos for that key vote for House Speaker. He's keeping quiet and clearly just praying that this whole thing blows over. Caitlin? Seems unlikely, given the new Congress is set to start next week. Eva McKend, thank you. All right, let's talk about all of this with CNN political commentator and political anchor at Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Um, not only are you great on all things uh, New York politics, you interviewed him. I did, uh, shortly after the election. I did. And um, he was not honest. No, he was not honest with, with me or anybody else. Um, I asked him what committees he'd like to serve on. He says, well, due to my financial background, I'd love to be on financial services. Um, and that's the problem here is that the lies start to compound and one leads to the next. Um, and of course, the overall problem is that he may have violated any number of local or federal laws. And yet he's on track to become a lawmaker 
unless something changes. What, what laws, and I guess who would it be up to if McCarthy's speaker? We, we know um, just at the local level that the state attorney general is looking into some of the things. I mean, one thing that Eva McKen just mentioned is that he started something called Friends of Pets United. Right. They apparently, and ran it for several years, took money from people. It was supposed to help pets. There's no record with the IRS of the thing actually existing. And the New York Times reported that somebody who was supposed to be a beneficiary of this good work, you know, and he's claimed to have saved thousands of pets, uh, they said they never got any money. So um, charities in New York are, are uh, monitored and regulated by the attorney general who's looking into it. And we don't know where that's going to go, but it, it's probably not going to work out the way George Santos wants. Uh, and then uh, generally at, with the federal, uh, there's something called the uh, False Statements Act. It just tripped up a number of people like Martha Stewart and others. When the federal government comes asking, you can't just write down any old thing on a, on a form and say, my company paid me a million dollars last year if the company doesn't exist. Yeah. But apparently George Santos did exactly that. But even putting the legal aspect of this aside, I mean, that's a big part, but the political backlash, him, you know, saying that his parents, had, his grandparents had, had survived the Holocaust and then now saying, oh, I never said I was Jewish. I said I was Jew dash ish yes yes that's that's you know um comedy <laughs> writers are often put out of work by these politicians you couldn't make up something like yeah. that um that's you know look the the district if you know I, I know a little bit about the district i i know some people out there um it's a very heavily jewish district um no hyphen um <laughs> there are a lot of holocaust survivors and children of holocaust survivors out there each piece of the fabrications by george santos you can, if you look at it closely, are targeted toward a group of voters, whether it's pet lovers, LGBTQ uh, voters, uh, Holocaust survivors, Jewish community, and so forth. The problem, of course, is that it's just a tissue of lies, and it all sort of unravels the minute you look at it. What about I mean, just the idea that he's framing it as an embellishment, though? Is this like the age that lots of people do? Yeah, is this the world we live That's in now where he's, flat out, he's admitting to flat-out lying about huge parts of his resume right. But he's saying, oh, well, I just embellished. You know, everyone overstayed things a little. I'm embarrassed. But he flat out lied yeah. and, and was silent for a week on this and yeah. now is speaking out. Well, about I, don't, I don't think he's finished, by the way. I mean, you know, more questions come up, like, you know, like the pet charity and, you know, so forth and so on. You, you know, the, the whole question of him saying that because he's on the record saying that he's never had a problem with his sexuality and so forth uh, and that he's a gay man. And then it turns out he was married until just a few years ago. Um, and, you know, and then he says, oh, well, this is private. Well, you know, you, you can't put it on your website and talk about it in speeches and run for public office. Mm -hmm. And then when asked about it, like, hey, you know, just you know, straighten out the timeline for us, if nothing else. And then sort of uh, run behind a cloak of privacy. And he's been invited uh, and remains invited to, you know, to come on CNN. Oh, sure. I'd, I'd love to, to talk answer, with him. To come I, back you know, to talk sure. to you. We've we, asked many times and maybe he still will because... Who he didn't talk to is the New York Times for either of their pieces. And then in this interview, he went after the Times. Right. Uh, in fact, what he's said pretty consistently from the beginning, and even his lawyer said, without denying any of the specific charges, um, says that, well, the New York Times is elitist and they don't like me and, they, and this is all political and so forth and so on. And, you know, I, I guess you can hide behind that if what, what you're trying to do is get to January and get sworn into Congress. Um, but... These questions are not going to go away. And the New York Times is not the only news organization. Newsday has questions. They're the local newspaper out there. Uh, Spectrum News, my company, your company, everybody's going to ask him, what the heck is going on here? And can you be trusted? Will anybody in Congress sit with you and make deals with you and rely on your vote and trust your word? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to see how he's going to 
function as a member of Congress. Uh, if, if, he, if all he is is a vote for Kevin McCarthy to become the next speaker, and he has publicly said he supports Kevin McCarthy, um, that might be the easiest and maybe only vote he gets to cast that doesn't have a cloud over it. Hmm. Errol Lewis, thank you very much. Again, no better voice on this this morning. We'll see what is to come. Okay, Miami Dolphins quarterback uh, Tua Tagovailoa is back on the NFL's concussion protocol. What we're learning this morning. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We're glad you're with us. Coming up, how the recent travel disruptions are impacting more than just your New Year's plans. Also, Ukraine wants a peace summit by February. What is Russia saying? And who is more empathetic, men or women? (laughs) I'll let you guess what a new study is revealing. All right. Also today, President Biden is headed for vacation. And while he is expected to sign that just passed one point seven trillion dollar government spending bill at some point this week, he's also bracing for a reshaped Washington in the new year. It's going to be buzzing with questions about 2024 and his potential candidacy. And it is also going to be a Washington where Republicans have control of the House just a little bit, but still control. CNN's Phil Mattingly is joining us live from the White House. Phil, what are you hearing for how the White House is preparing for what Washington is going to look like by the time President Biden gets back from this vacation? Yeah, I think there's a very keen understanding that it is going to be a very different town, a very different political atmosphere when President Biden comes back just one day before House Republicans are expected to vote on the speaker's race. And I think that race itself kind of gives you a window into some of the preparations that have been going on behind the scenes here at the White House and the fact that they don't actually know who's going to be the next speaker. The expectation has long been Kevin McCarthy, the current Republican leader, would win that race as he has continued to be short of the votes. White House officials have been watching. Not getting involved, not trying to put their thumb on the scale in any way, shape or form, but using it as kind of an illustrative moment for what a House Republican majority may look like and how they will interact with that majority. Uh, Kaylin, you know this building as well as anybody right now. They are planning for how they will operate in a new legislative environment, how they will operate in a new political environment. And of course, hanging over everything is President Biden's decision about whether or not to run for re-election. But they're doing so with a very clear momentum, in their view, behind them in the wake of a string of legislative victories, including that $1.7 trillion spending bill, in the very real sense that President Biden's theory of the case that he laid out during the campaign and into the first couple months of his time in office has essentially come to pass. And that should... Uh, kind of define how things operate in the next two years. Yeah, and we'll see what that looks like when it comes to those investigations as well. Phil Mattingly, thank you. A really significant change in China. This morning, the country is taking a big step to reopen its border for the first time in about three years. In the new year, Beijing will plan to drop its quarantine requirements for inbound international travelers. It also is removing restrictions on airline capacity and the number of flights that it lets into the country. Let's go to CNN. Selena Wang, she joins us live in Beijing. This is a huge deal, and it follows the end of their zero COVID policy. It also follows this uh, ending of releasing any data in terms of the numbers of COVID cases, a lot of mistrust there. How significant is it this morning that they're lifting all of these restrictions? 
Poppy, this is huge, and people are collectively breathing a sigh of relief. This was a whole slate of changes. The biggest one is that from January 8th, the country is dropping quarantine for all international arrivals. Authorities are also promising to gradually restart outbound tourism for Chinese citizens. Inbound travelers, they still need to get a 48-hour negative COVID test before boarding, but they've dropped all of the other super cumbersome requirements. Now, these changes, they are not only a big move towards ending China's nearly three years of isolation, but it also points to a formal end to zero COVID. And to really understand why this is such a big deal, we've got to look at the reality of what China has been. This country has been severely limiting throughout the pandemic who can go in and out of the country. Flights have been extremely limited and expensive. All arrivals had to go through quarantines in government facilities. I went through multiple quarantines myself, including 21 days earlier this year. And we're talking about harsh quarantines. No choice in what facility you go to, no opening your door except for food pickups and COVID tests. So all of that is now gone. And this is an emotional moment for so many people who've been waiting for three years or more to finally go home to reunite for family with family. And finally, so many people I'm talking to say they are seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. And another huge change, they have China has not allowed foreign made vaccine into the country, right? So Pfizer's vaccine, for example, Moderna. But when it comes to antivirals, treatments like Paxlovid, they're changing now? Yeah, Poppy, this is significant because it has been so hard for people to access antivirals in this country. But in a major move, Beijing has just announced it's going to start distributing Paxlovid to community health centers in the coming days. We don't know how much is going to be given, but this is much needed relief. Even basic medicine like fever and cold medicine are nearly impossible to get at drugstores across the country. Some local governments have even resorted to rationing the amount of medicine for sale down to the exact number of pills. And all of this is coming as the medical system is under a huge amount of pressure. Even in the capital here in Beijing, which has some of the best medical resources in the country, doctors say they are overwhelmed with elderly patients with COVID symptoms. Poppy. Okay, two big changes. Selena Wang, thanks for the reporting live from Beijing. Also new this morning, Taiwan is preparing to extend its mandatory military service requirement for all eligible men amid rising threats from neighboring China. It will jump from four months to a year starting in 2024, which is incredibly significant for Taiwan because they'd previously been shortening this required service as recently as 2018. It was going from one year to four months then. Now Taiwan's president says four months can no longer suit the needs of Taiwan's defense. Also this morning, thousands of passenger flights have been canceled this holiday season. But what about those flights that are carrying gifts and other last minute deliveries? Rahel Solomon and Nathaniel Meyerson are here to talk about it. That's next. I'm beyond frustrated and hurt. Because I can't see my dad. So, yeah, it's very disappointing. The real impact of what is going on with Southwest Airlines right now. They are canceling even more flights this morning. 
about 60% of them today, they think, amid a major meltdown that has left thousands and thousands of passengers stranded and scrambling to make other plans or missing their family in these plans altogether. And the deadly winter storm that disrupted travel for so many has also forced shipping companies to ground planes and keep trucks off the road during those critical last few days before Christmas. Let's bring in CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon and CNN business reporter Nathaniel Myerson. Good morning to you guys. Um, why don't we start with with Southwest? Because I don't want to like this is beyond the weather um, for Southwest. I mean, it sounds like it, because even still today, most of the cancellations are by and large Southwest. Right. So if you're at home wondering, is my flight going to be canceled over the next few days? Well, Southwest is saying it does expect these cancellations to continue through the next few days, which means that it could even stretch into New Year's Eve weekend. And what's crazy is the audio recording we heard of them saying you can't rebook your flight until the 31st. You can't book a new flight until January 3rd. But I wonder is, you know, I was in airports this weekend. It was madness for a lot of them. But I wonder how this impacts not just people getting to and from certain places, but also deliveries and all of these other impacts that we're seeing. Right. So this is the busiest time of the year for the retail industry. And people are waiting on those last minute Christmas gifts that they bought. But UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, Amazon, they've all had major disruptions to areas where the storm impacted. UPS said yesterday that 898 zip codes in four states, there were service outages. So those Christmas gifts, they're going to wind up being New Year's gifts by the time that that employees can can get in there. Yeah. What, what do you think is the lesson here for just going back to what Southwest is dealing with? Because this is because of, and they're admitting, their own system, the system that relies largely on 90s technology of not, I'm not talking about plane safety, I'm talking about communication and phones right. to tell pilots and, and uh, flight attendants where to go, not more digital and updated. And that's why they're in this predicament. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see moving forward if Southwest actually does update those systems. I think the lesson for us travelers is that the systems are, it becomes a domino effect, right? Whether it's a system failure or system issue in the case of Southwest, if it's a weather issue, which is what we saw with some of the other airlines, it takes one thing, one flight, one uh, you know storm, and then you sort of see a domino cascading effect across the country. So a few things to think about if you're a flyer. I mean, I've talked to uh, Brian Kelly, who most people at home would know as the points guy who runs the point system. And he says, look, if you have a really important destination that you need to get to, it's unfortunate that it takes this, but you should probably have a plan B, right? If you have frequent flyers, maybe you book a second flight as a backup, a plan B using those. I mean, that that's is not so unaffordable every, for like using points, using if you have it, that have that's yeah. something to consider. But it's, it's unfortunate, as I said, that you would even have to think yeah. about that. Yeah, and I think also this puts so much attention back on Southwest when it comes to this actual systemic part of this and whether or not this is an issue that they can fix. Because if you were on the Southwest flight, you heard that woman there saying she's not going to get to see her dad for Christmas. Why would you book a Southwest flight again if the, this is the risk that you're taking? And, I and by the way, the it's a great point. And by the way, we've also heard from Southwest travelers through different CNN reporters over the weekend who have said because of this, they're never flying Southwest again. So that's something for, obviously, company executives to think about, just the impact of this, and then also what that does in terms of brand reputation, in terms of what that does in terms of customer experience. And so, look, I think this is going to have a pretty lasting impact for, for Southwest, for sure. You want to talk about returns? <laughs> you all were griping in the commercial about returning things. Okay, well, a lot of people got stuff for Christmas, me included, some stuff you have to return that you can't keep, and now people are going to start charging 
for returns. So some major stores are going to start charging for returns. We love free online returns. We can buy anything, bring it back if the color, we don't like the color or the size is, is too big. But the stores hate it. It winds up back on their shelves or in their warehouses. They have to mark it down. They also have to pay for us to, to ship the stuff back. So you have uh, Anthropology, um, H&M, Zara, Abercrombie, they're all going to start charging for free online returns. We returned $816 billion, $816 billion worth of stuff last year, and stores are saying they've had enough. It's a nice perk for us, but it's a nuisance for the retailers. It's costly, as Nathaniel pointed out, and they have to figure out what to do with it. Can they resell it? Do they have to discount it? So they're sort of adding some friction to the return process, which for someone like me who hates returns to begin with, just because I'm lazy... This means I probably won't return anything Experiences, now. Experiences, <laughs> folks. But see, it means... Take someone out to dinner. Don't buy them a hat. But you need something to wear to dinner. <laughs> okay, touche. <laughs> got plenty to wear to dinner. I, I actually think this means some people will buy less. Because if you yes. know that it's mm-hmm. going to be such a pain to return, yes. I think people will buy fewer things. True, true. All right. Thank All right. you, guys. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us on this. Guess who's back? Anderson and Andy, they're back for another New Year's Eve celebration. Join them live from Times Square starting this Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, right on CNN. Don will join as well from hopefully a warmer New Orleans. All right, ahead, what's next for Miami quarterback Tua Tunga-Viola after he was placed on the NFL's concussion protocol for the second time this season? We'll also take you live to El Paso, Texas, where border agents say they are encountering more than 1,500 migrants per day. Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tunga-Viola is back in the NFL's concussion protocol for the second time this season. The team says he displayed concussion symptoms after Sunday's game against the Green Bay Packers. While Dolphins coach Mike McDaniel couldn't pinpoint a moment in Sunday's game where Tunga Viola might have been injured, some fans were pointing to this play that you're seeing here where his head hits the turf. That was in the first half. Tua went on to play the entire game Sunday. I care very deeply about each and every player. Um, I take that serious, so... um, you know, I just I just want him uh, to get healthy and have peace of mind in that regard, and um, th- that's first and foremost. And then, uh, you know, whatever those circumstances are after, you deal with after. But it's about uh, the human being and um, making sure he's uh, squared away. Tunga Viola was last in concussion protocol after week four when he was carted off the field on a stretcher and briefly hospitalized after his head hit the turf. Four days before that game, he took a hard hit while playing Buffalo. He appeared to show concussion symptoms, but he was evaluated and stayed in the game. This is what he said the first time he addressed the media after those injuries. I remember the entire night up to the point where uh, I got tackled. Uh, But, yeah, after after I got tackled, I I don't remember uh, much from from there getting carted off I don't remember that the NFL actually updated its concussion protocols earlier this season to mandate that any player who showed possible concussion symptoms had to sit out for the remainder of the game there was another scary moment in last night's Colts charger game where LA defensive back Derwin James was ejected after lowering his head and hitting a Colts wide receiver 
both players now in protocol. So joining us this morning is Dr. Chris Nowinski, a neuroscientist who leads the Concussion Legacy Foundation, which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to fighting concussions and, and bringing awareness around them. And thank you so much for, for joining us, Chris. I, I wonder just what your reaction is after seeing the fact that Tua is now back in concussion protocol again after seeing that play yesterday, even though I should note they say that they don't know exactly which play it was where he sustained this concussion. Just what do you make of this? Well, unfortunately, it's not a surprise uh, because each concussion will make you more likely to suffer another concussion. And his concussions were so badly mishandled earlier in the season um, that I suggested when he got injured uh, in October, September 29th that he not return this season to give his brain enough time to recover. Um, this hit, uh, like it does look like that hit to the ground, changed the way he played. His performance before that hit and after that hit were very different. He had three interceptions in the fourth quarter. Um, I, it, it looks like that third concussion now has happened. Um, and we have to worry about his future, not just as, you know, as an athlete, but as a person. And we have to worry now that people are going to consider him concussion prone when, frankly, I think the Dolphins mishandled concussion and left him open to this uh, very likely possibility that that happened. And multiple concussions in one season is terrifying. And you're right. It's not just about, you know, whether or not he's playing in the game. It's about Tua the person here. And so I wonder, what does the criteria look like? Do you think it should be for him to to go back and to play again this season? So we're at a very sort of dangerous place in time in terms of how we treat concussions. So 19 years ago, I suffered multiple concussions that weren't diagnosed when I was a WWE pro wrestler. And that's left me with permanent symptoms. And that is a possibility. Uh, the more concussions you get, the closer they are together. I, I, I was forced to retire from those. These days, uh, most doctors will say when your symptoms have cleared and you return, you go through the concussion protocol, you're safe to return. But Tua needs a doctor who's going to say, look, I could clear you, but for your, you know, your life, your profession, I shouldn't clear you. The season should be over for him if you are looking out for his long-term health. I mean, God forbid, if they clear him for some reason, he comes back and gets another concussion, when we, we should already be worried about potential novel mental health disorders. The studies are very clear. The more concussions you get, the more uh, likely you are to have anxiety, depression, uh, self-harm. These things are very real. And so I hope somebody will sit him down and say, look, you can't go back even if you clear the protocol because the protocol is not amazing science. Your brain needs months to recover from this many brain injuries in a short period of time. Right. It's been so many. I mean, I know it's concerning for his his family, his friends. RG3 was saying he doesn't think Tua should play at all again this season. I wonder, you know, we talk about the NFL updating its concussion protocols. Do you think they are stringent enough as they are now, or does it need to be changed? The fact that we saw that play that happened Sunday, Tua stayed in the game for the rest of the game. Are the protocols where you think they should be as they are right now? Well, the protocols are sort of negotiated between the Players Association and the NFL. So the, the players are very worried that if they hit their head and they're going to be pulled out even when they don't have concussions. And so the protocol is designed to not pull people out too aggressively. And so if, if, if you did pull everybody out who was hit in the head, you'd be pulling everybody out every game. So that's not really feasible. So I think you know, the players are comfortable with this. I think the reality is that we have to consider that Tua is the most watched athlete in the country for concussions right now. And everybody missed this, the spotters, the team, the doctors, his teammates. And it's just a reminder of how hard concussions are to identify. And, it's, and I think the extrapolation should be 
Think about your child. If you have your child in a sport like football uh, and you think you can spot their concussions, I promise you, you cannot. They, most of them don't show outward signs that you'll ever be able to pick up. That's partially why we suggest parents don't let their children play tackle football until high school. We have a, a campaign called Stop Hitting Kids in the Head. We can't control this concussion issue as much as we think we can. And Tua is a, a, a great reminder that we need to be uh, more, more focused on prevention uh, than just spotting concussions and removing players who already have brain injuries. Yeah, I know this is a big concern for Tua's parents, his family, his teammates, every, all the fans watching him. Chris Nowinski, thank you for joining us this morning with your expert, expertise. Thank you. All right, a new study is also maybe showing what some of us think we already know. Elizabeth Cohen explains why women may be more empathetic than men. Also, I hope this isn't happening to you, but it's happening to a lot of folks across the country. A major meltdown for Southwest Airlines. More than 60% of their flights have already been canceled this morning. What it means for you and why it's happening ahead. All right, there's a new study this morning, a large new study that shows women are better at empathizing with other people than men. This is something that the study showed was true around the world in 57 countries, meaning that location, cultural or family differences or influences actually didn't change things all that much. Joining us with the information from this study is CNN's senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, some people may look at this and say, you know, yeah, I already knew that. I didn't need a study to tell me that. But you're saying there's actual science here that shows the differences here. And I wonder what they studied, what they looked at, and, and how they walked away with this, this takeaway. Caitlin, so what they looked at is they showed people online pictures of people's eyes, just the eyes. You couldn't mm. see the rest of the face, just mm. the eyes, and said, what do you think? Is this person jealous? Are they amused? Are they irritated? Are they bored? There were different choices. I took the test, so I went through all of them. And apparently they, they, the researchers knew what that person was feeling in the picture. And so then they matched it up. And here's what they found. In 36 countries, women scored significantly better than men did. In 21 countries, their scores were similar. In zero countries, did men score better than women? And this was across many different countries, as you mentioned. This was people ages 16 to 70. So this is a wide range of people from different cultures. And it, it really tells you something about how people read faces. For example, we know that people with autism have, a, have trouble kind of reading what the rest of us would see as very easy kind of cues on people's faces. But apparently women are better at reading faces. There's probably all sorts of biological or environmental reasons why. That could be, but that's what they found. Poppy, Caitlin. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you. That's fascinating. CNN This Morning continues right now. We didn't get any text or any message telling us it was canceled before we came. What will you do Go back home, hang out with the pops for a couple more days, you know, uh, call my boss and tell him I'm sorry. <laughs> Hope this wasn't a bad decision. Good morning, everyone who is not at the airport today. Dawn Yikes. is off this morning. As you can see there, I mean, it has just been chaos at the airports over the last several days. That has not changed as flights have been canceled. Travelers have been stranded. Southwest Airlines 
forced to scrap more than 60% of its flights today. Also, the death toll is rising amid a record-breaking blizzard in Buffalo, New York. We're live on the ground there. Also this morning, Ukraine's foreign minister is aiming for a peace summit in the new year. Could Russia potentially be invited to the table and will they show up? Also, we're going to take you this hour to El Paso, Texas, where border officials say they are encountering more than 1,500 migrants a day. But first, we start this morning with a major meltdown for Southwest Airlines during a very busy holiday travel rush. The airline canceling about 60 percent of its flights today. Thousands of passengers have been left scrambling to make alternative plans as flight after flight and city after city has been canceled. Southwest Airlines CEO telling The Wall Street Journal, this is the largest scale event that I have ever seen. The airline says it will most likely have to cancel even more flights today. CNN's Gabe Cohen is live at BWI Thurgood Marshall Airport in Baltimore. Adrian Broadus is standing by at Chicago's Midway International Airport. We'll start with you, Gabe. How are things looking this hour? I see a lot of people behind you. We've heard from some passengers who say they've been on the phone waiting to reschedule a flight for more than six hours. They've been waiting in these lines at the airport for several hours. What's happening as of right now? Well, look, Caitlin, we're hearing a lot of that frustration. People arriving at the airport just to realize their flight is canceled. If you look behind me, that's the Southwest ticketing counter. It's not the zoo that it's been in recent days, but the reason why, well, the story is right here on the board. Look how many canceled flights there are for Southwest. Most of that done preemptively last night, canceling more than 60 percent of the airline's flights today, more than 2,500 of them. The vast majority of all canceled flights across the country and the CEO of the airline told the Wall Street Journal that they're only expecting to fly just over one third of their flights, their scheduled flights here in the coming days as they try to regroup after the winter storm and the holiday rush. Take, take a listen to uh, one of those Southwest officials speaking last night about this issue. First and foremost, we absolutely apologize. Hospitality is, is, I'll say, number two behind the safety aspect, as it should be. Um, but we do apologize to our customers. We will do everything that we need to do um, to right the challenges that we've had right now, uh, including while we are you know, willing to offer hotels, um, ride assistance, vans, whatever that looks like, rental cars, to try and make sure these folks get home as quickly as possible. Now, again, Southwest has largely blamed that huge winter storm last week, saying that um, most of their flight attendants, their pilots were left in the incorrect city and they've been trying to regroup, get pieces back in place, which is part of why they're canceling so many flights in the days ahead. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are questioning that explanation, given the fact that they are the only major U.S. airline that's dealing with this issue of mass cancellations really days after cities like Baltimore had any sort of weather issue. If you look at FlightAware, the flight tracking website, uh, Southwest is responsible for more than 10 times the number of any other U.S. airlines cancellations just yesterday. Certainly today, uh, they're responsible for the vast majority, guys. Yeah, what a struggle, not just for the passengers, for flight attendants, for everybody. Gabe Cohen, thank you. We'll check back in with you. All right, so from Baltimore, let's go to Chicago now. Adrian Broadus joins us standing by Chicago Midway International. Southwest flies in and out of there as well, right? I mean, I wonder what you're hearing from folks there. Oh, we're hearing a lot. And Gabe laid out one element of the story. The other challenge passengers are dealing with, finding their luggage. You can take a look for yourself, Poppy. Just look over here. A sea of bags. 
as far as the eye can see. One gay agent told me she's never seen so many bags here. This is where travelers normally come to get their luggage. Normally travelers are here waiting for their luggage, but the luggage is just here waiting for people to find it. Because, you know, luggage is not a human. Anyway, the other thing they don't want to see, boards like this showing all of the canceled flights. In and out of the U.S., data shows at least 2,800 flights have been canceled. And along with the cancellations and not being able to find their luggage, travelers are frustrated. Listen in. So my family was headed to Punta Cana on Friday morning, and they had, it took them almost three hours to load the luggage, and we weren't able to make our connecting flight, so they pulled us off the flight that sent our luggage to Fort Lauderdale. We still haven't been able to get our luggage back. I just found one of them. One of the other ones ended up in Punta Cana, and the other four are still missing. I've been here for an hour just trying to find my bags, and nobody seems to be able to help me or tell me where they even could be. The problem is that Southwest, they don't give any answer. Um, they don't answer the phone, so we don't know where our luggage is. So another day of packing patients. In addition to all of these bags, we've also seen strollers and car seats. So families traveling with small children don't have their belongings, but they also don't have an essential item if they happen to leave the airport. Meanwhile, I did speak with a Southwest representative here at Midway International Airport after a traveler told us she couldn't even go on the other side to get her bag. Well, the rep said, that's right. If Midway is not the final destination for a passenger, they are not releasing those bags. Poppy? Even if someone wants them back there? She cannot get her bag back. She says she has her son's active duty uniform in that bag. Yeah. They were trying to get to another relative's member or wedding today, but they can't get him. They're sending the bag to its original final destination, even though she's not going there anymore. I mean, that is. I'm speechless, Adrian. Thank you. Well, let's talk more about this. We've got the Captain Michael Santoro, who is the vice president of the Southwest Airlines Pilot Association here with us. He has been a Southwest Airlines pilot for more than 13 years. I, I wonder, what is your understanding of what went wrong here? Well, thanks for having me, Caitlin. Uh, so the storm that hit uh, last week was, was the catalyst to this. But what went wrong is that our IT infrastructure for our scheduling software is uh, vastly outdated. It can't handle the number of pilots, flight attendants that we have in the system uh, with our complex route network. Uh, we don't have the normal hub to hub, hub, you know, hub and spoke like the other major airlines do. We fly a point to point network, which can put our crews in uh, the wrong places without airplanes mismatched. And that's what happened. And our software can't keep track of it. So they don't know where we are. Uh, they don't know where airplanes are. And uh, it's just, it's frustrating for the pilots, the flight attendants, uh, and especially our passengers. And we're tired of apologizing for, for Southwest, the pilots of, of uh, the airline. And um, our hearts go out to all of our passengers. It really does. Yeah, I can see how frustrating it is. So it seems like you're saying this is, this is a problem they could have, that Southwest could have predicted, essentially. So, yeah, they should have preemptively canceled some more flights coming into Denver that more, that day. Um, you know, wind, weather was really bad there. Uh, 
Um, but uh, we have been telling them this for years. Uh, we have a meltdown like once a year for the past five or six years. Uh, and every year we go in and do an after action. Uh, and the SWAPA, uh, the union uh, leadership, we go in, talk to flight ops leadership, and we tell them, you know, you guys need to fix your scheduling software, the scheduling systems, and how you operate our schedules. Um, and to no avail. They never never update it, never invest the money and resources they need to. Uh, and so we continue to have this these issues. Uh, of course, this is the largest disruption I've ever seen in my 16 years at the airline. Really? It's the largest you've seen? Oh, for sure. It's it is uh, it, it's embarrassing. It seems that this is just as much trouble for the pilots and that I was reading pilots have had to book their own hotels when air, the airline didn't assign them. Flight attendants, some of them spent the night on cots and crew lounges. You know, what is the difficulty there? Because it was essentially seemed that they didn't know where a lot of the pilots were because they're displaced all over the country. Yes. Yeah, so we have, uh, you know, over 10,000 pilots altogether. Not that many are flying at one time, but imagine everybody is in the wrong city without hotel assignments and trying to find hotels. The phones, you can't even get through to our scheduling people or our hotel desks. And so, yes, pilots resorted to um, finding our own accommodations. Uh, and uh, we certainly encourage them to do that. So, you know, after 30 minutes of trying, we just said, go find your own accommodations, get some rest, because uh, obviously safety is number one issue. Number one, uh, the biggest thing for us and important and arrested pilot is uh, essential to that. Yeah, it's remarkable to hear that, you know, we've heard from customers saying they were waiting for hours to speak with representatives. Even pilots are having trouble getting them on the phone. We also heard from the transportation department saying that they are concerned about what they say is this unacceptable rate of cancellations and delays and reports of a lack of prompt customer service. They say they're looking into this. You know, what do you, what kind of action do you want to see here? Uh, I. Well, I mean, I, I know what I want to see. We have uh, a lot of systems in place in our uh, contract that we've actually been, it's been expired for over two years now. And we've been ne- negotiating a lot of things in place to fix these issues in our contract with our work rules uh, that would help alleviate some of this. Uh, and I want to see uh, some serious investments and changes happening in our scheduling uh, department uh, to, to make this work. Yeah, it's clearly not working now. Captain Michael Santoro, sorry for your troubles. Thank you for joining us this morning, though, to shed some light on this. Thanks for having me. Well, this morning, western New York is bracing for up to 12 more inches of snow today after what is being deemed the blizzard of the century has left 28 people dead. Officials fear that number will rise after the storm dropped nearly 50 inches of snow, leaving thousands of customers without power or heat leaving emergency vehicles struggling to reach drivers stranded in very dangerously cold temperatures. Polo Sandoval joins us again live in Buffalo, New York with more Polo. Good morning. Again, it goes without saying thank you to you and your whole crew. You've been dealing with all of this and it just continues. And now those frigid temperatures, Poppy, and with that rising death toll, uh, the reality is people here in Buffalo will always remember this as a blizzard of 22. Uh, What we also know is that resources are now coming in from other New York State communities. Uh, For one, it's uh, resources to plow and help clear out the streets to make them more drivable, and also resources and first responders to be able to get to people who've still been stuck in their homes since late last week. Uh, So that kind of gives you a sense of what the situation 
operations like the uh, driving ban. It is still actually in place this morning. They did scale back on some of those measures in some of the surrounding communities. But for Buffalo itself, that will be in place at least for now. Authorities will revisit that. I have seen a few more vehicles on the streets. But look, uh, we've been basically sheltering place uh, along with uh, with other Buffalo residents for four uh, going on five days now, Poppy. And so many people have told us that uh, they are hearing that their pipes burst back in their homes. So even after they can finally leave a hotel and head to home, it's going to be far from over for them. So everybody's certainly looking forward to, though, to that 50 degrees that is uh, within reach. But that will also mean a massive snowmelt, right? It will, right? And there are dangers that come with that. The the death toll of 28, when we were on the air yesterday, it was uh, 13 and they were just about to update it higher. Are the concerns that you're hearing from emergency officials, they think that death toll is going to rise even more? Absolutely. The way we've heard it from the uh, executive of the county of uh, Erie, basically saying that the medical examiner's office has been receiving bodies and then they are the ones that ultimately have to decide whether or not the death of an individual Mm. is directly linked to the storm. Uh, And that includes individuals that suffered a cardiac event while they were shoveling the snow. Obviously, people that um, were found in their vehicles. Almost 13 of the ones who have been counted so far were found outside. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, it is the medical examiner's office here in Erie County that will decide uh, exactly if that fits that criteria. And sadly, the reality is that number is likely to rise. But it already surpassed uh, what we what we, was seen here in, uh, in, in, in 77 with the blizzard then. Yeah, it has surpassed that. Polo, thank you again for the reporting. Well, I had a drone strike hitting deep into Russian territory There is a particular significance to where this strike happened at a military facility. We'll talk about that ahead. Also ahead, we are going to be joined by the El Paso County Commissioner, David Stout, as officials are working to shelter and process the latest influx of migrants. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. The Ukrainian Air Force has not yet claimed responsibility for a drone strike that killed three Russian servicemen on Monday, but they're also not denying it. The attack happened hundreds of miles deep into Russian territory at the port city of Engels. It is the second attack on the city this month, which houses a strategic Russian bomber air base. Let's talk to David Sanger, CNN political and national security analyst uh, and White House national security correspondent for The New York Times about this. David, help us understand it because it is so foreign, right, to so many of our viewers. So if you could help explain the significance of where this strike was in Russia, maybe comparing it to, to the United States and what it would be like in the United States. Um, sure. So... First of all, this base is pretty far from the Ukrainian borders. It's about 300 miles in. So this is one of the furthest strikes into uh, Russian territory that the Ukrainians have launched. And it looks like they did it with one of their own drones. The uh, U.S. has said no striking into Russia with American-provided weapons. But they haven't put any restriction on using Ukrainian-developed weapons. We don't know how much damage it did, but the nature of the target's pretty interesting. Engels Air Force Base is, in fact, a strategic bomber base. That is, that's where they keep some of the bombers that they would use if they attack the United States. So to answer your comparison question, um, 
it would be a little bit like uh, somebody hit Ofut Air Force Base out in Nebraska, out near Omaha, which is where the U.S. keeps some of its strategic bombers and where its strategic command is headquartered, and then said, but don't worry, we weren't really going after your nuclear assets. We were going after the other assets. I'm not sure we'd completely believe them. Mm. And in this case, the worry is the Russians would say, well, this is beginning to infringe on our nuclear deterrent. And David, is this... What does this mean for Russia in the sense of are they being forced to move planes? How does this complicate what they've been doing in Ukraine? Well, Caitlin, there are two forms of complication here. One is they've got to move some assets around. And that's, of course, what the Ukrainians are trying to force them to do, because we think from this base they have launched some of the planes that have sent cruise missiles into Ukraine, which have done huge destruction to the cities and to the infrastructure. The concern, Caitlin, is this, that at this point, the Ukrainians are basically betting that the Russians are throwing everything at them except nuclear weapons. And they think the Russians won't cross that, that, that line, that basically Russia will not make this a nuclear uh, confrontation. We suspect they're probably right, but you don't know that for, for a fact. And the question is whether Putin at some point will feel as if he is losing so on the conventional battlefield that he has to change the nature of the game by using a tactical weapon. And that, of course, is what the U.S. has been war gaming, scenario planning for four months, but it's not clear how the U.S. would respond. I wonder, David, what you make, because given your reporting last week after uh, President Zelensky addressed Congress, you said, you know, for all of his talk about victory, it really revealed hints about his worries for the year ahead. And then just a few days later, now we hear from the Ukrainian foreign minister that they would like to have a peace summit um, in February. What, What does that mean? And would Russia even participate? What would that look like? Well, Poppy, it's great that they are uh, looking for a peace summit because all wars or just about all wars end with a diplomatic solution. But in this case, there are many reasons to be a little bit uh, skeptical, if not cynical, about the offer. The first is that uh, his next line, the the, uh, Ukrainian foreign minister Kaliba's next line was, and the Russians will have to face war crimes trials. I don't think any of us would doubt that war crimes trials are in order here, but it's hard to imagine the Russians entering a negotiation if that's a requirement. The Russians have said, we're happy to negotiate anything, but by the way, we have annexed parts of the territory, uh, the the, uh, four provinces, so those aren't up for discussion. Well, what do you debate if not the territory and the, the lines of Ukraine? And of course, one of the things that the Ukrainians keep saying is, that uh, their boundaries have to go back to February 23rd, the day before the war started, which would essentially mean the Russians would have to retreat. It doesn't seem right now as if either side believes that they have enough of an advantage that either one would really enter serious negotiations. So it seems unlikely that you think anything is changing in that sense in the near future, David. Well, I think the Ukrainians think probably rightly so, that it's better to be in the position, Caitlin, of offering the talks and making the Russians be the ones who didn't show up. At various points, the Russians have said they're open to negotiations, but of course, not on territory. So, uh, you know, it's one thing to say you're ready for negotiations. It's another thing to have conditions ripe 
that both sides are actually willing to come to the table with significant concessions. And I, I just don't see that right now. That's the key. David Sanger, thank you so much for helping us understand what happened and what's ahead. Great to be with you. All right, next, we're going to take you live to El Paso, Texas, where border agents say they are encountering more than 1,500 migrants a day. We'll be joined by the El Paso County Commissioner on how they are dealing with this and what he wants to see from the Biden administration. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up for us, travel chaos. Thousands of flights again today canceled in the United States, most of them coming from Southwest Airlines. Plus, New York Congressman-elect George Santos speaking out for the first time, admitting to lying about a number of things that he said as he tried to win his election. And the death toll rising in Buffalo, New York this morning as it struggles to dig out of a record-breaking storm. We will be speaking with the city's deputy mayor just ahead. We start, though, with officials in El Paso, Texas, as they are attempting to fortify the border with Mexico, putting up new fencing before Christmas. And more is on the way now, we are told, as CNN has learned approximately 22,000 migrants are sleeping in shelters, on the streets, in makeshift camps across three parts of northern Mexico. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in El Paso on the ground. Rosa, what are you seeing and hearing from officials who have been struggling to deal with this surge in recent weeks? You know, Caitlin, their biggest concern is that a migrant could die outside in the streets. And this is a concern on both sides of the border. I want to show you around because I'm in El Paso, just outside a church that serves as a shelter. But they only take about 120 people. Look around me. On both sides of the street, there are individuals who are sleeping on the bare concrete, a lot of them with their children. I talked to some yesterday who say that what they do at night is they wrap themselves with their children in their blankets to try to keep their children safe. All this, as you mentioned, that we're hearing that there are about 22,000 migrants that are waiting on the Mexican side of the border for Title 42 to lift. We learned this from advocates and city officials in a few cities, the cities of Matamoros and Reynosa, there's about 13,000 migrants there. Scenes like the ones you see here are what you see in the cities, in those cities. Now, those cities are just across the border from the Rio Grande Valley. And also in Tijuana, Mexico, we're learning from an official there that there's about 9,000 migrants who are also waiting for Title 42 to lift. And Caitlin, I've got to say, there's a mix of individuals here in El Paso some individuals who turn themselves into authorities, border authorities, uh, others who are deciding because they're so desperate to cross the border illegally. That's why some of them end up out on the street, because the city says that for them to be um, allowed into shelters that are run by the city, they have to follow the law. Those are those have to be individuals who are actually documented. And so what you see here is what in what a lot of city officials here fear is that that the temperatures drop, it's very cold in El Paso, and a migrant could die. There could be uh, uh, this, this, this humanitarian crisis could, could turn tragic if that happens. Caitlin. Rosa, I, I see you're pretty bundled up there. How, how cold is it in El Paso right now? You know, right now it's 36 degrees, and you can see that a lot of the individuals who are sleeping out here on the street, all they have are American Red Cross blankets. That's all they have for the night. I talked to a family yesterday who says that they feared that their daughter was going to die after they crossed the Rio Grande because they crossed overnight. It was very cold. 
their daughter was completely wet. The daughter was only one is only one year one year old, and she says that this couple was so desperate because their child wouldn't stop crying. They knew that they needed to warm her up, and they had absolutely nothing. So what they did was they walked around this neighborhood and desperately knocked on doors asking for help. And they said that that someone from El Paso helped them out. They gave them something to wrap that child in. And she says that she used her body heat to try to keep her child warm. No parent should have to do. Rosa, thank you for that report. Wow. Let's talk about all of what we just saw from Rose's reporting with El El Paso County Commissioner David Stout. David, as Kaylin said, no parent should have to do that. And this is happening in your city right now. What is going to be done? How do you help them? Well, uh, you know, uh, the the images are terrible. The stories, uh, you know, are just gut-wrenching. And, you know, I know that El Paso County is committed to the humane treatment of migrants. We are working as, as hard as we can with the city, with local NGOs to try to get people sheltered. But uh, we need continued support from the federal government. We need support from the state government, not militarization of the border, but true meaningful support in the way of uh, helping with sheltering, feeding and, and, and getting these folks uh, taken care of. So let's talk about specifically what that aid looks like and what you'd like from the Biden administration. You are a Democrat, I should note. And according to numbers from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, just look at them. I mean, we can pull them up on the screen. There has been a huge increase in the number of migrant border crossings at the southern border. Um, This past fiscal year, look at that number. Almost 2.4 million crossed. And... I wonder what you need and what your message is to the Biden administration, because those numbers are indisputable. Well, we need we need uh, uh, continued resources. Uh, you know, I think the Biden administration has been helpful in in reimbursing the county and the city for uh, expenditures that we've been making uh, for sheltering, for transportation of these folks. But obviously, uh, we we need we need as much help as we can get. Um, you know, this is, this is a crisis that really is a mismatch between the reality of the people who are coming to contribute to America and the lack of a system that's prepared for that. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help when you have demagogues like the governor of the state of Texas preventing a solution by hyping the border as an existential threat to the United States for political purposes. And, and so, um, you know, we we are continuing to try to collaborate with all uh all of those authorities on the, on the federal level with the NGOs. I cannot thank enough uh, the NGOs who have been uh, really doing the Lord's work in this, in this situation. And, um, you know, we, we, we're going to continue to do as much as we can to take care of these folks as they're coming through here. And I hear you pointing to, to Governor Abbott. Uh, it is uh, the Biden administration, Democrats controlling the White House and both chambers of Congress right now. I, I want your take on what uh, Democratic Congressman uh, Henry Cuellar, uh, who represents Texas's 28th district, told Caitlin uh, just about a week ago. Listen. Do you think the Biden administration understands that sense of urgency? You know, I, I, I don't think they do, or if they do, they just have a very different perspective. Look, it's okay to listen to immigration activists. It's okay to do that. That's one perspective. But who's listening to the men and women in green and blue? And more importantly, who's listening to our border communities? I don't know why 
they keep avoiding the border uh, and say there's other things more important than visiting the border. If there's a crisis, show up. Just show up. As the commissioner of a border community in Texas, do you agree with him? You know, I, I, I do agree with the fact that, that uh, the Biden administration needs to, to listen to us locally here on the border and, and come through with the requests that we're making. Um, that's there's there, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, whether whether a visit to the border is going to make things better or worse, I'm not sure about that. But I, I, I do think that, um, you know, the Biden administration has been in contact with with at least county officials yeah. here locally um, uh, on a pretty regular basis. Uh, we do need to make sure that that those requests that we're making both to the federal government and to the state government uh, are, are, are coming through. And to that point, David, uh, look what Rosa just showed us, that that reporting of, of, of those migrants lined up wrapped in Red Cross blankets with their children in them in 36 degree temperatures on both sides of the road. Should the president come? He has not come at all as president to the southern border. Should he come see it for himself? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think I think that it, it would be great if he would come. But what's more important, in my opinion, is that we have ample resources to be able to make sure that those people are not uh, out in the cold um, and, and that the NGOs have the support they need, that the city and the county of El Paso have the support that we need when it comes to uh, sheltering them, feeding them and, and transporting them to wherever their final destination may be. On your point about resources, though, the Supreme Court is about to make a decision one way or another on Title 42. And the Biden administration's position is that, um, you know, at, at this point, uh, Title 42 should end. That's going to mean an, an, a bigger number of migrants crossing uh, the southern border and into El Paso. Is resources really the answer at this point? I mean, it has been so many decades, decades, since we've had comprehensive immigration reform from Congress. Sure. I mean, uh, obviously, comprehensive immigration reform would be would be uh, the, the greatest thing that could happen uh, to to help curb some of these issues. But, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, it's difficult to do that. And, and I think there's some low hanging fruit when it comes to certain types of uh, legislation that that have, has been proposed to, uh, you know, help help uh, with the situation, uh, whether it's, um, you know, allowing more low-skilled workers to come in, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with dreamers, those types of things. But, um, you know, I, I think there's some low-hanging fruit as well when it comes to uh, when, when, when Title 42 goes away, and that, and that is uh, making sure that there's an orderly and timely process that's taking place when you have these folks coming and asking for asylum. Uh, right now you have CBP agents at the middle of the bridges downtown keeping people from cross from crossing, stepping foot on, uh, into the United States to ask for asylum at the bridge, which is pushing them to the outskirts or uh, to scale the wall, to go across the river, to run across uh, busy highways, uh, which are all very dangerous. And, and I think there is something that could be done there to, to make sure that these, po- these people's lives are not put in danger as they're trying to yeah. come to this country legally because asylum is a legal way to migrate to the United States. Yeah, that's a very important point that you make. Um, as- asylum is, and there's a record backlog of processing these asylum 
uh, petitions right now as well. David Stout, we wish you luck and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. All right, in the U.S., you can see, look at the world's busiest airport in Atlanta. That's a long line of people just waiting for answers this morning about when they can get home, if they can get home, what that's going to look like. We're going to talk to a travel expert on how to deal with all the disruptions, not just the ones there at the Atlanta airport, which had a water main break yesterday. If you're worried about cancellations affecting your New New Year's plans, stick around. We'll tell you what you can potentially do. It has been an incredibly frustrating few days for those who are flying home for the holidays, trying to fly home, and are now trying to get back home. Already today, more than 2,800 flights have been canceled into or out of the United States. That's after 4,000 flights were canceled yesterday alone. So what can you do if you're one of the thousands who has been stranded ahead of New Year's as you are trying to get back? We have travel expert and the spokeswoman for Scott's Cheap Flights, Katie Nastro here with us. Scott's Cheap Flights does obviously exactly what is in the name. And Katie, we've been talking all morning about what these delays look like. We are trying to bring people some good news this morning, maybe some ideas of what they can do differently. And so if you're at an airport, if you're watching this and your flight has just been canceled, it's been delayed, What are the options that people have of how to rebook, how to get a new flight? What's the quickest way for people to do something like that? Sure. I mean, the the last few days have just not been so holly and, you know, (laughs) merry for a lot. And my heart goes out to anyone that is having to deal with long customer service lines and just, you know, basically not any options at their at their fingertips. You know, one thing that I would recommend that people do, obviously, yes, speak to a customer service agent as soon as possible. But, you know, a lot of people are flooding the domestic lines. One thing you can do is call the international customer service line. A lot of these airlines, even Southwest, have a a foreign customer service line, which those agents will be able to help you just the same. They'll be able to get you rebooked. Um, And those wait times for those lines drastically less than the domestic line at the moment. So that's that's one thing that you can do uh, to help yourself in the, in the immediate. Um, you know, number two, get out your credit card. Some credit cards, if you issue pr- uh, travel protections in scenarios such as canceled or significantly delayed flights. So, you know, that hotel uh, room that you might have to book if you're stranded in, you know, maybe a connecting city, get your credit card out, see what what they cover, and a hotel reimbursement might be part of that. And that just takes not only not even a minute to just type in your card issuer into Google and see what travel protections might come up. Those are very good tips. Thank you for those. I think the question regarding Southwest Airlines, because their flight issues now, more than half their flights canceled today, is no longer because of weather. It's because of their IT system their antiquated 1990s style system, they've admitted that in terms of getting pilots and flight attendants where they need to be. Is there any reason for people to believe that this won't happen again with Southwest Airlines until that is overhauled? Look, I mean, Going into a peak holiday season like the winter holidays, um, you know, the systems already are stressed um, due to the fact that, you know, a lot of airlines, not just Southwest, are operating 15 percent less flights. And, you know, couple that with tech 
technology issues. Yes, this is a, a serious issue that, you know, we hope in the future Southwest will rectify. And, you know, they, they've even put out communications stating that they know that they are failing people mm -hmm. and, you know, they know they're failing their staff as well. And so they want to rectify this and, and make it right in the future. So, you know, fingers crossed, we hope that this won't be an issue moving forward, but something needs to be done. And even the DOT is is looking into uh, this, this scenario because these cancellations and delays are significant without really the weather being a factor, as you stated. So it's 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 something to, to watch for sure. Yeah, the Department of Transportation with that. Uh, thank you for the helpful tips, Katie. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Katie. Since Democrats outperformed expectations in the midterms, the Biden White House has been quick to call out Republicans. Does this mean President Biden is gearing up for a 2024 re-election? We'll talk about that in a lot more ahead. Welcome back. As President Biden decides whether he will run again in 2024, the Biden White House has certainly been hitting back harder, responding quickly and more forcefully to Republican controversies and actions. A new Washington Post report highlights several examples of the administration hitting back, including immediately calling out President Trump after he hosted a Holocaust denier for dinner and an anti-Semite, strongly condemning Trump's call to terminate the Constitution over the 2020 election. Uh, the Washington Post also reports, quote, the rapid responses come as some Democratic strategists see a political advantage in pointedly and frequently drawing a contrast with Trump, the Republican Party, and the Republican lawmakers poised to take over the House. So let's talk about this and a lot more with CNN senior political analyst and senior editor at The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein. Good to have you, Ron. Um, let's, we're going to get to your piece and your sort of unknowns yeah. for 2024 in a moment. But this yeah. was interesting reporting by Tolu Olarunapa from The Washington yeah. Post. Um, and he laid out all these sort of ways that the White House is hitting back now without reporters like Caitlin used to always have to press them for these answers without reporters even yeah. saying, well, what do you make of this? So what does it tell you? Yeah, right. Yeah, good morning. Happy holidays. Well, look, in 2022, uh, Biden executed a subtle but significant shift in the way that Democrat that he had been talking about uh, former President Trump. Now, in 2020, Biden dealt with Trump pretty much the way Hillary Clinton did in 2016. He treated him as this anomaly, this unique threat who was not representative of the Republican Party uh, as a whole. And when he came into office, as you alluded to, uh, their uh, usual reaction was not to mention Trump by name, to argue about looking forward. But what became clear over 21 and 22 was how much influence Trump had still had within the Republican Party, how many were kind of following the path that he laid out on election denial uh, and and the way that they dealt with cultural issues. And so in 2022, there was a very different tone from the White House uh, where they basically talked about the breadth of the MAGA strain in the Republican Party. And that proved a very effective line of argument in swing states. And I think what you're seeing in that piece is the White House recognizing that and continuing to push in that direction. I think we're going to see that an awful lot heading into 2024. The question will be whether other Republican presidential candidates, if they are introduced to the public by running against Trump, can be portrayed as effectively under that same umbrella, the same way as effectively as it did to Tudor Dixon or Carrie Lake mm -hmm. or Herschel Walker. Well, and that's the struggle. You know, they can use this, and that's kind of what they've been laying the groundwork for, is would this slim Republican majority that we know is going to be investigating them 
But there has been concern, and we've heard this from Democrats outside the White House and some people inside the White House, of what this looks like when there are other Republicans in the 2024 field who are dealing with Trump, but also how Biden himself is is preparing if he does, and the expectation is he will announce he's running for re-election in short order. You know, how do they deal with that when there is a Ron DeSantis, or is there, there is someone who is that alternative to Trump? Well, Kaylin, I think the core question is whether what we saw in the swing states and the blue states was a recoil against Trump personally or a recoil among voters against Trumpism. Because Ron DeSantis is not Trump, but he is certainly running on a lot of Trump-like themes. And we are going to see over the next two years in the House, when Kevin McCarthy, because they have such a narrow majority, turned out to be much more dependent on the right than perhaps many in the in the leadership of the Republican Party had hoped. And you are going to see figures elevated like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan, who are going to re-air Trump grievances or kind of pursue Trump-like themes over the next two years. I don't think it's going to be hard for the White House to portray this House majority as essentially following in a Trump-like path. Their internal dynamics have virtually guaranteed that will happen. The bigger issue, as I said, is if you have people who are introduced in 24 as running against Trump, Will voters see them as an extension of Trumpism, even if that's the agenda that they are offering? Ron, before you go, you've got this great piece and you 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 take us back to the Donald Rumsfeld days in the Iraq yes. war. And you talk about what he sort of coined and made so famous, the known unknowns. What are the big ones for you right. heading into 24? Yeah. Right. There are a lot of questions we can't know the answer to that are going to influence 24. But I think we know which questions uh, are the key ones to know about for 2024. They are the known unknowns. I think the biggest is what happens in the Republican Party. Do they nominate Trump again or do they tear themselves apart and not nominating him? I think second is what happens to the economy. We know voters were dissatisfied with an economy of high growth, uh, low unemployment, but high inflation. All the predictions are that we're going to have the opposite in a year, uh, much lower inflation, but uh, higher uh, unemployment. Will voters be more satisfied with that? What do they think about Biden's uh, health? Do they think he is up to the job for another uh, four years? Can either party break out of the demographic and geographic trends that we have seen that uh, have essentially left us in something very close to a stalemate over a decade? Uh, and finally, does that Republican House do more damage to Biden through their investigations or they do more damage to the GOP brand uh, through uh, the way they, uh, by, by potentially reinforcing this Im image of extremism that hurt Republicans so much in uh, blue and purple states last year? There are others, but for me, those are the biggest known unknowns for 2024. And that last one is a great question because you have heard Republicans, you know, they've been basically chomping at the bit to take over the majority for obvious reasons. But with such a small majority, you know, I've heard from Republicans who say we're concerned about what these investigations look like and what path this goes down. And do we look like we have a strategy and we have it together mm -hmm. or is it going to be chaos? And we don't even know who's going to be the House Speaker starting next week when the new Congress such takes a good over. Point, Ron. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, guys. Happy holidays. Thanks, All right. Ron. CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning. It is 8 a.m. Eastern. We are so glad you're with us. It is December 27th. Welcome to CNN this morning. All right. So we will begin with travel chaos. Yeah. Glad you made it back. Barely. Glad I made it back. <laughs> but we are uh, empathizing with all of you stuck in the airport this morning. More airport chaos ahead for travelers trying to get home 
after Christmas. More than 2,800 flights canceled today. That is after more than 4,000 flights were canceled Monday. Travelers with Southwest Airlines really feeling the worst of it. 62% of all Southwest flights have been canceled today. And if you're looking to rebook a flight, prepare to wait longer than normal. Southwest has just told customers they will have to wait until December 31st to rebook. Yes, December 31st, several days away from now. New bookings won't even be possible until January 3rd. The CEO of Southwest Airlines telling the Wall Street Journal, we've had a tough day today. In all likelihood, we'll have another tough day tomorrow as we work our way out of this. This is the largest scale event that I have ever seen. So let's go to our colleague, Nick Valencia. He joins us live at uh, Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Adrian Bronis is standing by at Chicago Midway. Nick, Caitlin told me a water main broke there yesterday. Is that right? Just to add to things. Yeah, you know, the temperatures are really cold here, and it's just adding to things. And, you know, there's uh, alarms going off here. Not right now so much, but it is just adding to this post Christmas travel chaos. It's continuing for at least one more day here. This is the line right now for Southwest Airlines. You're looking at about, you know, an hour and a half, two hours to get to the front of the gate. The lines are bad, but not as bad as the stories that we're hearing. Earlier, I spoke to a family attendant, the Dunnigans. They had planned to travel from Atlanta to Steamboat Springs until about four this morning when they got an alert from Southwest Airlines saying that their connecting flight in Texas had been canceled. They say they have a full schedule booked and are at risk of missing out on about $30,000 if they don't get on their flight as scheduled. Meanwhile, I spoke to another couple here. They've been traveling for four days. They just want to get back to Wichita. They said it's been at least that long since they last saw their personal belongings. Not expecting something like this, but for sure. Like financially, this is going to take a toll. How much could you guys potentially miss out on if you guys don't get on your flight to Colorado? Oh, probably 30 plus thousand dollars for a group of 10. We got off a cruise in, in Fort Lauderdale since Friday. What's been the issue? How, how come you can't get home? We've been southwest, so we've been lied to that there must have been some enormous storm that have covered the United States and every flight in the world has been canceled because every flight that's been canceled has been storm related. So we live in Wichita, so if my boss is watching this, yes, it's true. I didn't just blow off the day. I'm actually standing in the airport doing nothing. And um, I do have a ticket, and I hope to come to work at some point in my life. The Joneses say they just want to get back home, just want to get back to work. That's how desperate they are to get back home. They do say, though, that everyone they've spoken to at Southwest uh, at the ticket counters at the gates have been really lovely and, you know, have empathized with them, even if they say it's a little, you know, too much for them to, to, to bear right now because they just want to get back to where they're coming from. Uh, meanwhile, more and more people start to show up at the line every minute here, and they're just hoping that they don't have the bad news that so many others that we're seeing and hearing from today are receiving. Poppy. It's really hard on the Southwest employees. You're right as well. Uh, Nick Valencia, thank you very much. They need answers. Everyone does from management. I mean, in Atlanta yesterday, that water main break just contributed to the issues. I mean, you, there were restrooms that were just totally closed. The people, I mean, everyone was trying to deal with it as competently as possible, but it was just... How'd you get so lucky? I mean... I, I don't know. But Someone was watching. I booked early. You. Yeah, they knew that they didn't want you anchored alone. <laughs> I didn't want to be alone. Thank you. Uh, I know, but it's not a laughing matter, though. I mean, look at Chicago Midway International Airport. It is the second on the list of most canceled flights today. More than half of the Southwest West flights from there were canceled yesterday. That left hundreds of travelers trying to figure out other backup plans to get home. Some were waiting in line for hours, three or four hours 
for answers. Look at the baggage claim at BWI this morning. Travelers were forced to retrieve their own luggage from the sea of bags. No help from airline staff, they said. CNN's Adrian Bronis is there. Adrian, you showed us this line. I'm still shaken by all the baggage that you showed us the last hour we spoke with you. What are you seeing and what are you hearing from officials at the airlines there as they're dealing with this? We'll talk about the bags and the officials later. Right now, I want to focus on the people. The people, that's who's most impacted. Like my new friend, Catherine. She's going to tell us what she's been through and why her bag, why she needs it so desperately. Catherine, thanks for being here. Um, and no, no laughing matter here, almost tears. Oh, it is, it is because we were flying from Arizona to Chicago to go on to Albany. They told us when they canceled our flight, the minute we, the second we got off the plane from Arizona, they told us that our flight was canceled. When we got off the plane, we looked around. We waited two and a half hours to find out what was, what was going on. Can we get a new flight somewhere to, to, to Albany to find no avail? Everything's canceled till the 30th or the 31st. So then we think, okay, they told us, assured us that our luggage would be in Albany. My, we sent our daughter to Albany because my husband and I are both on medication. So we went, she went to Albany and they told her there is no luggage there. And that was six o'clock last night. So we come here and they tell us our luggage is here, but they, don't, they can't give it to us. And I said, I, we have medication, we need it. We can't pull it, we don't have the manpower. And that's part of the frustration. Catherine is one of many stories. In her bag is her insulin. Those who live with diabetes know how important that medication is. And there's other people who need their medication, too. Yes, some might say, well, don't you travel with it in your bag? You probably only have a very little with you on your checked bags. And it's also important to underscore you don't live here in Chicago. You're trying to get home to Phoenix, but you're about to rent a car and drive to New New York. Yes, because we came to Phoenix. We came from Phoenix. So as we try to get back to Phoenix, there's no Phoenix either. So we're driving. So we're hoping we can get a rent a car, which we're all out yesterday. Today, this morning, they said there would be some. So we're hoping to drive to Albany. So weather permitting, we'll get there safe and we won't crash or we won't die. So, and we can't stop and get medication anywhere because to stay and stand there, it's just, it's just a mess. A mess. A mess. Our hearts are with you. We appreciate you sharing your story. And, you know, this is just one element. People aren't so much concerned about the long lines anymore. They need their life-saving medication. We're going to let you go. But will you give um, my friend Sandy on the other side your last name before you take out off? Because we'd like to keep in touch with you. But she's just one story. I'm going to snake around on the other side. Well, Adrian, actually, He's been waiting you, here. He Catherine. wanted to share his story, too. Go ahead, Caitlin. Before you leave, Catherine, oh, I, it's that a, is unfortunate. Hold on, stand by. It's a 13-hour drive Caitlin. from from BWI to Albany. And can you ask Catherine what she plans to do if they can't get medication? What is? Do they have a backup plan? What is? What's her next option? Does she think? So Catherine was kind enough to wait for us. I promised her five minutes max. We kind of went over that. So I let her go. So I can't ask that follow up right now, but she's leaving Chicago Midway here in Illinois to drive to Albany. We don't know what her backup plan 
she's likely wishing and hoping for the best. But the thing is, she says she knows her luggage is here. It's somewhere in this sea of bags. And Caitlin, that is what is so frustrating for these passengers because you're so close and you can't reach and get what it is that you really need. We'll send it back to you. Well, Adrian, I, I see you have someone else there with you. What is what's his travel experience been like? So his name is Sandy. We just met a moment ago. Uh, fill us in on your travel experience. We know you're trying to get your bags. Oh, yes. I was um, here on Saturday, spent the whole day while my flight got delayed, delayed, delayed. And all of a sudden, at, uh, and I was actually holding on to my bag. And all of a sudden, it, like, um, it, it was supposed to go at 7, and all of a sudden, they had changed the flight time to 4.20. And I had to rush and put, check my bag and got there, and the flight got canceled after I waited an hour getting there. So are they, you live here, but they're still going to send your bag somewhere else? Now my bags are on their way. Well, they're somewhere here, they tell me, but I can't, uh, I can't get them. They tell me there's no manpower to retrieve my bags. It's, it's crazy. And um, we've been on the phone for, like, 10 hours trying to get through to Southwest. Their computer system hasn't worked. Nothing, you know, it says to rebook your flight online and it doesn't let you do it. And, I'll, you know, there's no information. There's no way to get information. So I came here first thing this morning just to see if I could find my bag. And, uh, you know, it's frustrating. It's not, you know, they, they tell me here at the baggage claim office, they say, basically, uh, your bag's here. It's going to go to Fort Lauderdale. We don't know when it'll go to Fort Lauderdale. And then eventually it'll come back here. So. We appreciate your time as well. So those are just two people, two stories. But folks have been coming up to us all morning wanting to share their experience. Caitlin. Yeah, I mean, I just can't even imagine what that, that has been like for them. Adrian, thank you for finding for finding both of them and talking to them to just really humanize what these these delays look like. It's not just cancellations and, and issues waiting in line. It's medication, Insulin. a 13-hour drive, yeah. no baggage. Adrian Broadus, thank you for that report. All right, on top of all of this, there is this record-breaking and very deadly storm that continues in Buffalo, New York this morning. Uh, 28 people have died so far in western New York as a result of this storm that has brought high winds and nearly 50 inches of snow to some areas. Officials fear the death toll could rise. Search and estimate Search and rescue efforts are continuing this morning, so I want to bring in Buffalo's Deputy Mayor, Crystal Rodriguez-Dabney. Deputy Mayor, thank you. I am so sorry. Uh, I mean, beyond the blizzard of 77 and a death toll at 28 now, are you expecting that to rise? We are. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, we are expecting that to rise today. We should have an update for the community uh, mid-morning, but we are expecting that number to go up, sadly. A grim question, but I think a necessary one is what are what are most of these people dying as a result as a result of? Uh, some are some are indoors. Um, uh, some are sad stories of carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm. Some are in vehicles and sadly, some are outside. Um, we, we don't know all of the stories, but there's a combination of where they're being found. We have snow banks and some of our first responders are not hopeful about what we're going to find once those snowbanks are cleared. They think people got buried in the snowbanks in their cars? Uh, having walked, oh. uh, trying to escape the abandoned cars. Oh. Um, we, had a, we had a driving ban uh, in the city of Buffalo. Yeah. Um, people were trying to get home 
and they were stuck. And so many people tried to ride out the storm in their car, but also some people tried to walk and leave their cars. Um, so we're seeing a combination of people in cars and outside of cars. I'm so sorry uh, to hear all of that. You know, yesterday we were joined by the county executive of Erie County there, um, who talked to us about it being so bad that even some of your first responders have have had to be rescued. I think that says yes. so much. Is that still going on? Um, it's not still going on, but it was something that was a huge problem for us. We had uh, rescue uh, vehicles that were trying to get to emergency situations that were calling saying we're stuck. Um, and so we had rescuers rescuing the rescuers. Um, and when the state came in, we were saying that that was a priority, that we needed to help the rescuers first so that they can go and help the public. I know in the middle of this, the mayor has also uh, said that there's been looting and has called it reprehensible. Um, that mm. is that is exacerbating the crisis you guys are going through right now. Is that right? Well, that's making it worse because yeah. the police who are trying to respond to emergency situations related to health now have to respond to emergency situations related to crimes. Um, we have people who are taking TVs. We have people who are uh, breaking into stores that have nothing to do um, with just basic survival. Uh, and it is reprehensible. Your message to anyone uh, in the county watching right now, is it still stay home? Today, we do have a driving ban still in the city of Buffalo. We are still trying to clear out. We recognize that people want to get out and get moving. We ask, please, for your continued patience as our DPW workers, our public workers, uh, our police, our fire, our national grid are, are trying to get out here, clear the way so that we can restore power to those that don't have it yet. And so we can clean up and get the city clear. Please adhere to the driving ban today. It is continued in the city of Buffalo. We are trying our best to get things cleaned up, and we just thank you for your continued patience. Deputy Mayor Crystal Rodriguez, Dabney and Buffalo, good luck to all of you. We're thinking of you. Thank you so much. All right. On the international front, Russia's foreign minister has issued an ultimatum saying that Ukraine must fulfill Russia's proposals or the Russian army is going to take matters into its own hands. This, as Ukrainian President Zelensky is warning about what the situation looks like on the front lines. Bakhmut, Kremina, and other areas in Donbass that require maximum strength and concentration now. The situation there is difficult, painful. The occupants are spending all the resources available to them. And these are significant resources to squeeze out at least some progress. CNN's Will Ripley is live outside of Lviv in Ukraine for CNN this morning. Well, you're hearing what Zelensky is saying about Bakhmut. He was just there last week seeing those Ukrainian forces. What else is happening? Good morning, Caitlin. You know, if you read between the lines, what, what President Zelensky is saying without saying it when he says difficult and painful is that there are, are casualties, casualties numbers that go unreported here in Ukraine. Uh, but yet, uh, nonetheless, the troops there are taking a very heavy hit and on the Russian side, presumably as well, because both sides have been lobbing each other with artillery, not to mention the fact that these areas are so heavily filled with landmines that it makes it very difficult to make any advance. That's why the front lines in the Donbass uh, have essentially been 
more or less unchanged despite relentless attacks uh, from both sides uh, trying to take territory from each other. Uh, it's a very dire situation indeed. Uh, there are still millions of people without power as a result of Russian airstrikes, even though the power situation has been slowly improving. But just within the last few minutes, Caitlin, the air raid sirens went off again in Kyiv, which of course has the nation bracing for the potential of another Russian attack. There are also cyber attacks that have increased threefold just in the last two years. They're saying 4,500 cyber attacks targeting uh, military targets, but also civilian infrastructure so far this year. It's just a remarkable number. They're really getting hit on all fronts here in Ukraine. Yeah, saying essentially that Russia is doing everything that it will short of essentially nuclear capabilities and employing those. What about what we're hearing from Ukraine's foreign minister? I know that they have been saying they would like for Russia to be barred from the United Nations Security Council. Obviously, that seems pretty unlikely, but it is something that they are asking to happen. Yeah, there's actually no mechanism written into the U.N. Charter to remove one of the five uh, permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, which, of course, includes the United States, China, Russia, Britain. Uh, they, this is something that Ukraine has said that Russia doesn't deserve to be on. They don't deserve to have veto power because essentially any resolution against Russia for alleged war crimes, any condemnation can be vetoed by Russia. Uh, Ukraine says it's time to kick Russia out of the U.N. and remove them from the U.N. Security Council. But at this stage, it doesn't seem to be a real realistic option, uh, even though the Ukrainians have certainly been pounding their fists at the desk for quite some time, saying it's time to do something to punish Russia for its actions here in Ukraine against civilians. Well, Ripley, thank you. Well, this morning, time is running short, not out yet, but short for Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to secure the votes he needs to be elected House Speaker. One week from today, the newly elected Congress will be sworn in with a slim Republican majority in the House, and several incoming Republicans have already said they will not vote for McCarthy's bid to be Speaker. Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill with more. But then the question is who? Yeah, Poppy, I mean, that is the question. Pressure is mounting on Kevin McCarthy to lock up those remaining votes. The state of play right now is there are five conservatives who have said that they will not support Kevin McCarthy for speaker without some kind of concession. There could be more. Some conservatives arguing behind the scenes that there are more concerns growing. But the concern right now among moderates is the fact that they are in a position where they could go into next week and there could be multiple ballots on the floor of the House of Representatives where they could be in a position where this could take not just a day but multiple days to sort out the concern that when they were elected in November, voters gave them the power to come to Washington to do oversight of the Biden administration, and they could be in a position where that just can't really get underway because they do not have a speaker. Those conservatives calling for a significant rules change where they want to empower any one member to bring up a vote to oust the speaker at any time if Kevin McCarthy didn't do something that they wanted to do. You can understand, Poppy, how ungovernable yeah. the Republican conference would be if Kevin McCarthy was constantly looking over his shoulder, having to make every decision, knowing in the back of his mind that any member could bring up a vote yeah. to oust him at any moment. Yeah, and some Republicans have been saying that would literally stop business being done for either party, whoever is in power, right, in, in the chamber, because every day this could happen. Every day one member could object and... And that would happen. Exactly. And I mean, Democrats could use it, too, to right. delay any action on the floor, Poppy. OK, Lauren Fox, thank you very much. You'll have a busy week ahead. We know that. We appreciate it very much. Caitlin.
On speaking of that Republican majority coming up, New York Congressman-elect George Santos has been speaking out, now denying he's a fraud, though he's admitting to lying about his education and employment history, among other things. I'm not a criminal, not here, not abroad, in any jurisdiction in the world have I ever committed any crimes. All right, incoming Republican Congressman-elect George Santos now admitting that he lied about his education and employment history. He confessed that he never graduated from a college or university after saying he had graduated from Baruch College. He also says he never worked directly for Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, despite claiming that he worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. He says he is sorry for embellishing his record. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. And I'm not going to make excuses for this, but a lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or ingrandiate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. I want to make sure that if I disappointed anyone by resume embellishment, I'm sorry. Joining us now is Michael Gold, who is one of the two New York Times reporters who initially broke the story on George Santos and the discrepancies. The headline, who is George Santos? His resume, baby, largely fiction. That was a story last week that has led us to where we are now with these interviews he's doing. It's a lot more than just overstating his resume, isn't it? I think that case can be made. Uh, Mr. Santos has said that he graduated from Baruch in 2010. There's another biography of him provided by the National Republican Congressional Committee where where it says that he attended NYU. He now says that he never graduated from any institution of higher learning. We still don't know about his educational background. That's kind of a hole there. Uh, in an interview with the New York Post and on WABC, he said that he misspoke when he said he worked directly for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. If you look at an earlier version of his campaign biography, he's very specific about not just the job titles there, but the order in which he had those positions. Um, so, so that's a place to start, I think, in terms of figuring out where the truth actually lies here. I mean, it's a, where do you even begin? But um, one of the what appears to be a lie uh, is something he said that has to do with the national tragedy, and that is the Pulse nightclub shooting, because he had claimed that four of the people murdered there worked for him. Uh, Anthony Weiner, the former New York congressman who actually works for WABC, now asked him about this in this radio interview. I want people to listen. Were your grandparents Hungarian Jewish refugees that survived the Holocaust? I never said they were Hungarian. My grand, my, so my grandmother. I'm sorry. Uh, you, I'm sorry. Uh, my, Ukrainian, Ukrainian. So forgive me. Forgive Ukraine, me. So my grandfather, Ukrainian descent, my grandmother, Belgium. So that's the story. He goes from Ukraine to Belgium. They go to Brazil. So, so, so we, we, my entire life. So reports that your grandparents were born in Brazil are wrong. Well, to the best of my knowledge, to, to the best of my understanding, no, they were not. Got it. Did anyone who worked for you perish in the Pulse nightclub shooting? That worked for me directly? No, but we did have people who were being hired to work for the company at the time who during I was in Florida during the Pulse nightclub shooting at a at another uh, nightclub that same evening, not too far away. But, yes, we did lose four people who were going to be coming to work for the company. No, that was starting up in Orlando. What is your reaction 
that. So uh, probably important to start with where these Pulse comments first came up. Yes. Uh, in an interview shortly after the congressman-elect won out in Long Island, he told WNYC that he, his company at the time lost four employees at the Pulse nightclub shooting. You can hear in that interview his language is shifting now. These are four people who were in the process of being hired by the company. You know, that's a little harder to confirm for us. Um, my colleague Grace Ashford and I reviewed obituaries and news coverage of, of all 49 victims who, who died in that shooting, and we couldn't find any four that worked for the same company, let alone one of the ones in Mr. Sanders' biography. I think that there's still a lot to explore here. We still don't know what company he's speaking of. We know that he did spend some time in Orlando and in Florida in 2016. He was registered to, to vote there in that election. So I think we're still exploring exactly the nature of those claims. Um, you know, and to the other point, he's also claimed that his, his uh, grandparents fled Holocaust-era persecution in Europe. Uh, CNN, as you know, and The Forward, a Jewish publication, have both reported suggesting that may not be the case. The Times has not uh, independently verified or confirmed that. You still have a lot of questions, though, including about his finances, which was something he talked about in these interviews, specifically that radio interview. He talked about saying, yes, he's he's had these financial difficulties. He's talked about real issues that, if they are true, obviously are genuine things uh, that any other people have struggled with. But when it comes to what his finances look like, he talks about this, but then he did loan himself $700,000, his campaign, this election cycle. So what questions do you still have about George Santos? I think a big question for us is where that money came from. And we're not suggesting that there's anything untoward about it. But in a financial disclosure he filed with the House during his run in 2020, he suggested that he was only making $55,000 a year. His campaign was loaned significantly less money by him uh, during during that election. Then in 2022, he says he's making a $700,000 salary. His his company, the Devolder Organization, is is doing dividends of one to $5 million. Um, we don't know a lot about what that company does. We don't know a lot about its business model or, or who its clients are. And obviously when someone's serving in Congress, you wanna know, you know to who they're working with and who they're doing business with. I wanna give you a chance to respond to, uh, because every time you've done an article, including you know front page of the Times again today, you have asked for him to talk to you, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. and he's declined every time? Uh, we haven't yet to speak to Mr. Santos. We've spoken to his representatives. Okay, because he went after you and your colleagues at the New York Times in this interview saying you've, quote, made it their, you guys have made it your mission to slander me. What is your response? Uh, Grace and I stand by the reporting that we've done uh, and the follow-up stories. I obviously can only speak to the stories that we've written. I can't speak to the many follow-ups that have been done. Um, you know, one thing that Mr. Santos said in, in his interviews yesterday is um, that he denies ever committing criminal charges. There's a report that we found, there's a court case in Brazil that we pulled up that suggests that he has admitted to, to a case of check fraud. And uh, one thing that we've seen is that Brazilian media outlets have released new details and, and delved into that more and have corroborated our reporting. Well, he also corroborated your reporting by admitting that he lied about those big parts of his resume that you first uncovered. So thank you for joining us to talk about this. I'm sure we'll have many more questions yeah. and conversations about this going forward. It's a great report. Thank you. All right, just ahead, China opening up partially. We'll tell you about latest changes, incredibly significant changes to their travel policies as they are easing COVID restrictions amid a surge in case numbers and those protests in recent weeks. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Chinese President Xi Jinping is calling for a new health strategy as the COVID situation in China worsens. His comments come after China abruptly abandoned its zero COVID policy uh, this month following nearly three years of lockdowns, quarantines and mass testing. A sudden change that has resulted in a, a huge wave of infections, leaving hospitals badly strained, pharmacy shelves empty 
And starting on January 8th, international travelers flying to China will only need a negative PCR test. They will no longer be required to apply for digital codes used to track people's health or quarantine. A lot of changes. Let's talk about what is happening in China right now with Ian Bremmer, president of the Eurasia Group and the author of The Power Crisis. Ian, thanks. Good morning. I, I mean, this yeah, is like and then now they're allowing Paxlovid uh, when they didn't allow foreign made vaccines. Xi Jinping has done a complete 180. And I, I it, it seems sh- shocking, really unexpected. And I wonder what you think is driving it. It is uh, a stunning uh, 180. Uh, this was and a lot of people thought maybe after he got that third term at the party Congress, a couple months ago, then they would open up. They had no intention of doing that at all. Coming out of the Congress, Xi Jinping was saying this is the most successful COVID policy in the world. And it was only when the demonstrations began that suddenly it got through to Xi Jinping that this was unsustainable. And he didn't just tweak it. He didn't prepare for it. He suddenly let it rip. And uh, yep. you're right that um, what this means is you're going to see enormous spread of cases and a lot of people, a lot of elderly and Chinese particularly, that either aren't vaccinated at all or are only vaccinated with non-mRNA Chinese vaccines that are very much less effective than what we have in the West. And that means you're going to see extraordinary numbers of deaths, or at least there will be extraordinary numbers of deaths. The Chinese government, of course, stopped recording most COVID deaths in conjunction with this new policy. Right. right. And how do you think that's going to reflect on Xi? Internationally, it's going to reflect pretty badly uh, because what this means is that Xi Jinping uh, can no longer be counted on to be consistent in what he says and what he does going forward. Uh, We see we have a lot less data coming out of China than we did five, 10 years ago when Xi Jinping uh, first took over. What does that mean? If you are an investor, you need metrics, you need data. If you have no idea what's happening in the country, it makes it you a lot more compelled to feel like that's a safe investment for you going forward. If you're thinking about, uh, if you're Japan and you're talking about doubling, you know, your arms spending, the fact that Xi Jinping is a leader that seems so volatile uh, makes you more scared about your own national security. So you'll spend a lot more on your military. I mean, on pretty much every front, uh, this is bad news, even though we will see China's economy bounce a lot stronger and a lot more quickly as a consequence of this policy. Can we talk about China's economy and the U.S. economy and how like Apple and what happened at the Foxconn factory ties into all of this? Uh, Because I just wonder what you think this I think companies have realized like Apple. Oh, my gosh. To be so reliant on a country like China, given the policies that they put in place, can cripple you. But at the same time, well, and also given the policy, I was just at the same time, Hank Paulson, the Treasury sec- former Treasury Secretary, said last year, remember, it is impossible at this point to decouple the United States economy and China's economy. So where does it leave us? Well, suddenly a, a sudden and complete decoupling of the kind that we've seen between Europe and Russia uh, would would throw the United States into an immediate and very sharp recession. And American corporations don't want that. But let's keep in mind that uh, when the Americans and the Chinese were meeting over the Russian invasion, we told the Chinese, if you provide military support to Russia, we will put direct secondary sanctions on you. In other words, we were prepared to decouple from the Chinese government in really serious ways, in ways that would really hurt our economy if they behaved in ways that we didn't like. And of course, that sends a message to U.S. 
corporations as well. The decoupling that's actually happening right now is principally in high tech, what we call dual use areas that are both economic and directly for military and national security. And principally, mm -hmm. we're talking semiconductors, for example, big issue about TikTok may yep. be forced uh, to sell off their U.S. Uh, branch. That kind of decoupling can and will happen, and companies that are in the high-tech space are going to be faster in moving their production away from mainland China. But also, Ian, just to bring it back to these changes that we're seeing from China, what does it look like in your sense, or what is your prediction of when international travelers are actually ready to go back to China, what that looks like? Because, you know, we don't actually know how many visas or when they're going to restart to start um, issuing those visas. We don't really know how many flights are going to be going into China right now. It's like six percent, I think, of what was happening in 2019. So do you think international travelers will be going back to China? What will that look like, you think? Well, first of all, I think Chinese travelers are going to be traveling internationally almost immediately. And I think the tourism dollars that will come through will be a major spike. That's been completely cut off for most of the last three years. So economically, that's what we're going to feel in the United States, in New York, in L.A., and in, you know, big international tourist cities. That's coming immediately. But in terms of Westerners, uh, I, look, I, everyone I talk to that does serious business in China is, is very concerned about the fact they haven't been able to meet with any of their interlocutors on the ground. And Zoom calls with the Chinese is not getting business done. So they're, they're quite, uh, they feel it's quite urgent uh, to start traveling. And I would say as soon as they can get visas, they're going. Uh, and of course, it's bureaucratically, it's gonna be difficult and the people with the best relations will, will get their visa stamped most quickly. Uh, but, but I do expect given everything else we've seen from Xi in the past only several weeks that you're gonna see this country open up to travel very, very quickly. Ian Bremmer, thank you very much. Appreciate your insight. Mm -hmm. uh, just ahead, you know, gas prices are way down. How much are you gonna pay more though at the pump in the new year? We have that reporting ahead. We're just talking about if travelers need a drink at the airport uh, because travel has been such a nightmare. Another day of disruption for air travelers across the country trying to just get home or to their destination. More than 2,800 flights canceled today. Most of them Southwest Airlines struggling to get back on track after a major technical meltdown of their communication system. Joining us now, CNN Business Correspondent Rahel Solomon, CNN International Correspondent Mark Stewart. Um, well, didn't you used to work for an airline-related company? I spent time in grad school writing for the Points Guy. So what I, is going on? I, well, it is, let's just say, a plethora of problems. It's not just one thing. And these issues really started to build uh, back in the summer of 2021 when people started to fly once again. It is, of course, the pilot shortage, the flight attendant shortage, the logistical, the IT issues that Southwest is facing, of course, the weather, but above all, Airlines right now are on this big pressure to, to keep their profit margins high. So they are packing planes. There are no extra seats and they're trying to beef up schedules. Airlines only make money when planes are in the sky. So if there is a hiccup along the way, everyone feels it. There is no extra seat on another flight. And that's why this is hitting so hard. Well, the referee that we interviewed earlier, oh, he was retiring. It was guy. his last game, last Pac-12 game that he was refereeing. 
And he was talking about how his flight got canceled and then they had another one, but it was overbooked by 22 seats. So right. they asked for 22 volunteers. You know, normally you hear them ask for one or two. Uh, before we get to hell, I just want to, it seems like this is an issue that Southwest could have prevented. That's not actually about the weather we've seen yeah. in recent days. Years it's ago. More, more Years systemic. Ago. Yeah. Well, as we heard from the CEO, I mean, he almost he issued an apology and acknowledged that that things were not where they should be. Uh, Many companies are dealing with these antiquated software systems and such. But when you are a customer facing business like an airline, maybe that's not something you should delay. I mean, to that point, the CEO did tell The Wall Street Journal that they're committed to investing in those systems, but that they, you know, essentially did not commit, um, did not sort of come through this time around, and that promised the company will invest in better systems, uh, modernizing the operations let's as we talk, talked about. Let's talk about um, gas prices. Um, our colleague Matt Egan has some interesting reporting on the fact that they're going to be less beginning of this new year, but then more? Yeah, so gas prices have been really volatile, right? Anyone who owns a car who has filled up their tank this year. Me? Exactly, me too. <laughs> you know that prices have been sort of all over the place. So Gas Buddy just put out its new forecast for 2023, and the forecast for the year is about 3.49 a gallon. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be sort of staying at 3.49 all year, but to put that in perspective, we're tracking this year to end the year at about 3.99. So that is still about 50 cents savings per gallon. That should mean about $270 for the average American family. That said, the sort of caveat is there is a high level of volatility and uncertainty. So that is the hope. And we should say that Gas Buddy was pretty much right on the dot this year around. So, you know, here's hoping. And the government forecast is the same, about 349 a gallon. Heading into the summer, though, we're probably going to see that move back closer to $4, which we see every season, right? As, as demand starts to pick up, prices also go up. So, you know, we could be sort of still in for some swings, but we are not expecting, knock on wood, to see those $5 a gallon that we saw in June of this year when prices were had really spiked. Well, and it's all relevant to this conversation. A lot of people, we just spoke to one woman oh, from Adrian Broadus, they're having to drive and get rental cars because of what's happening with their flights. In addition to this, this what we're seeing over the last few days, how are we seeing consumer habits changing as a whole because of the up and down that we've seen with gas prices? Well, Americans in particular have become very nimble. At the beginning of the pandemic, people were certainly complaining. Why well, should say the beginning of this gas crisis back in was March is when we really saw those elevated prices. People were complaining. By the end of the summer, AAA actually did a survey and found that Three quarters, about three quarters of Americans actually made adjustments in their routines. They combined errands. They ate out less often. Five dollars was that that mark. It was that, yeah. it was that mm-hmm. threshold. And they adjusted. And so this was perhaps a learning experience that we need to we need to be very savvy when it comes to how we move. Yeah, we'll see what it does going forward. Mark and Rahel, thank you both for joining us oh, this morning thanks. on this. Okay, what are you doing? What are you doing Saturday night? Anderson and Andy are back for another global celebration. Join them for New Year's Eve live from Times Square starting 8 p.m. Eastern time on CNN Saturday. Don will join them as well, hosting from New Orleans. Well, just ahead, a Western New York couple proving why Buffalo is known as the city of good neighbors. They surely are after they open their home to a group of South Korean tourists stranded in the storm One of those good neighbors joins us. Buffalo has long been called the city of good neighbors, and our next guest is exactly why it has that name. During the height of the massive winter storm that Buffalo saw, a couple living in the suburb of Williamsville 
opened their doors to a group of 10 South stranded South Korean tourists after their van was stuck in the snow. And for the next two days, they bonded over football and over their mutual love of Korean food. So joining us now is the homeowner, Andrea Campania. Andrea, we're, we're so impressed with you and your story and your grace in hosting this family. Can you just kind of tell us how you met them, how you met these tourists? I, I'm told they just came to your door and, and they kind of knocked and you thought maybe it was a neighbor? Yes, we did. We heard a knock at the door around 2 p.m. right when the storm was really starting to kick up. And two gentlemen were there asking for shovels. They said, we need help. And my husband went out to help them. He got about 10 feet out and realized he couldn't see anything. The snow was coming down really heavy. And then they said, we're part of a tour group. And soon 10 people were in our home and freezing cold. <laughs> I love what one of the girls in the group um, sent you this note and, and she wrote, thanks to your help, I was able to survive. Thanks to you, I'm bringing special memories. I will never forget your kindness. Thank you so much, Merry Christmas. I mean, talk about a Christmas gift and a miracle that they needed. That was so heartwarming. She was unsure of her skills with English and so she handed me this written on a napkin and it brought me to tears. It was really our pleasure to help them. And so you guys, what did you do during those two days that they were staying with you? I know you, you had luckily uh, some food that you had pork shoulder. I think you said you had bought uh, on sale and put in the freezer and you guys just started cooking together. Yes, and I think that that was really comforting for all of them, especially because during a blizzard, there's not much to do. They had found out that we actually had our first date at a Korean restaurant. And so all the women in the group got to cooking and they found out the dish that we had on our date and they recreated that dish for us. Wow. Do you think you guys will keep in touch? We will. We really feel we've made lifelong friends and uh, several of them have invited us to visit them in Korea. Oh, that's so awesome. You gotta go. You gotta go. And some airline should fly you there for free because you were so good. Just saying. Just saying. Yeah. Subtle hint, hint. Andrea Campania, though, this is, this is such a heartwarming story. We've been talking about all this misery that people have been experiencing yeah. and especially what's been happening in your area, Buffalo and outside Buffalo. So, so thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for hosting them and for joining us this morning. It was our pleasure. Thank you. All right. Such a great story. Good way to end it. I know. A all great right. way to end it. And CNN Newsroom is going to start right after this break. We'll be back tomorrow morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.